Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin on this Thanksgiving with an effort to explore what we can be thankful for in spite of the polarised and hate-filled politics at home and the grim war-torn landscapes abroad, with Putin's war on Ukraine bringing daily stories of looting, rape, torture and executions. Joining us to bridge the divide between hope and despair, malevolence and thankfulness is Kate McIntosh, the Executive Director of the Promise Institute for Human Rights at UCLA's School of Law. She was an administrator responsible as Deputy Registrar for the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. Previously, she was a legal advisor to Doctors Without Borders and was part of post-conflict human rights field operations in Bosnia as well as Rwanda. She was also Deputy Chair of the Independent Expert Panel for the Legal Definition of Ecocide. Then we'll look further into what we can be thankful for on this Thanksgiving, as well as what we have to face as challenges to our democratic future in this country and on our planet as we address or fail to address the daunting global threats ahead. Joining us is Stephen Schwartz, a senior fellow at the Bial Foundation and a distinguished scholar at the California Institute for Human Sciences, as well as editor of the daily web publication SchwartzReport.net and a columnist for the journal Explore. His latest book is The Eight Laws of Change, and his latest articles at Explore are Driving Out the Carbon Age, Healthcare After Roe, A Saga of Shortage, Misery and Death, and Science Slowly Accepts the Matrix of Consciousness. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us on this Thanksgiving is Kate McIntosh, the Executive Director of the Promise Institute for Human Rights at UCLA School of Law. She was an administrator responsible as Deputy Registrar for the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, and previously she was legal advisor to Doctors Without Borders and was part of post-conflict human rights field operations in Bosnia as well as Rwanda, and she is the Deputy Chair of the Independent Expert Panel on the Legal Definition of Ecocide. Welcome to Background Briefing, Kate McIntosh. Hi Ian, lovely to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, your background, obviously, is such that you have witnessed some of the greatest horrors that humankind is capable of. And now, of course, we have a hideous war going on in Ukraine with absolutely grotesque human rights violations from the Russians, looting, rape, murder, torture. And now, of course, even footage that appears to show Ukrainian soldiers shooting Russian prisoners. So Given that your institute that you formed that founded at UCLA, the Promise Institute for Human Rights, that suggests something optimistic to me. So here we are on a Thanksgiving day. So without summoning 
you're, you're in a Pollyanna. Is there something you feel that we can be thankful for, at least hopeful for? I mean, you can't work in human rights without being hopeful, Ian. Um, I think everybody who works in this field is basically an optimist because we all believe that we're making the world a better place, right? Otherwise, there would be no point in doing what we're doing. So I think there's a lot to be thankful for. I mean, there's terrible things happening, but the very fact that we're aware of all those terrible things to a certain extent is a sign of progress, right? I mean, the, the way communications has developed, the amount we're able to see that individuals are able to document, it means that we all know what's happening. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Uh, that means that we agitate for something to be done. That means that there's a higher chance of accountability for those crimes in the future. So you know, even that depressing fact holds a kernel of something positive. But more broadly, I think, uh, I mean, as someone who has lived through some major changes in the world, I mean, in my lifetime, I've seen the end of apartheid in South Africa. I've seen the end of the troubles in Northern Ireland. You know, we, I think things do change. And there is, although the his, you know, history is not a steady march forward into a, a positive future, we are seeing norms developing around human rights, around atrocity crimes, around acknowledgement of the dignity of the individual that are developing and are having some impact. Um, I mean, I teach a course on the laws of war. We just had our last class last week, and a lot of that class is students throwing up their hands and saying, but these norms are violated all the time. You know, we look at stories in the paper, whether it's from Ukraine, Afghanistan or Yemen, but at the same time, um, those norms do influence behaviour. The fact that they're not uniformly observed doesn't mean that they're not of value. And these are things that, you know, were not there 100 years ago, you know, were not there 70 years ago. And they are having some impact on, on the way we behave, the way states behave, the way wars are fought. So I think I think there is something to be thankful for. And as I said, uh, you know, you've got to be an optimist in, in this business. And, and we all believe that we are working to some effect towards towards a better future. Well, you mentioned the end of apartheid and the end of the troubles in Northern Ireland. The one optimistic area, and of course, this doesn't mean that people aren't suffering and being abused in the most horrible way. But nevertheless, it seems that the young women that are leading the opposition in what is clearly a revolution underway in Iran are really inspiring. Do you see that as a hopeful sign, even though there is a lot of sacrifice? Absolutely spectacular. It's incredibly moving. Uh, I don't know if you saw the uh, the Iranian team at the World Cup, uh, you know, refusing to to join in the the national anthem yesterday, a few days ago, which was also an incredibly brave solidarity move in support of the women activists in their country it, it, it's wonderful and and to come back to the communications point like we're seeing what's happening in iran in a way that the iranian authorities would absolutely not want us to and you know there's support all over the world now the amount of impact that that will have on the current regime of course is, is hard to gauge but it's really important to other struggles around the world to see what Iranian women are doing and the way they're courageously standing up for their rights. So it's an absolutely inspiring story, even while I think we're all also reading about, of course, the imprisonment and even executions that are following, which are horrendous. So you, are, of course, uh, the deputy chair of the Independent 
expert panel on the legal definition of ecocide. And it, there's an article at The Guardian uh, that caught my attention, um, Kate McIntosh, Make Ecocide an International Crime and Other Legal Ideas to Help Save the Planet by Stephen Donziger. So it seems like your idea and the legal definition of ecocide is catching on. I really think it is. I mean, this is certainly something that's very exciting. And I talked earlier about developing norms. I mean, this is a norm that is developing fast. So there is currently no international crime of ecocide, but it's absolutely gaining, gaining pace. So at the COP in Egypt, I wasn't at the COP myself, but colleagues who were there told me that ecocide featured in many of the conversations. There's a great deal of interest from states. Belgium actually has just passed a resolution, a parliamentary resolution to not only support the new international crime of ecocide at the International Criminal Court, but to make ecocide a crime in the Belgian penal code. So Belgium will be the first new country to introduce ecocide as an international crime. So it's really catching on. Um, and, and I think that's a signal of, I mean, it's a reaction, of course, to something that's not good, which is the way we're destroying our planet. But it is a signal of shifting consciousness and awareness and value that we are starting to value the planet in the same way that we've been valuing you know, the integrity of human groups by prohibiting genocide or of civilian populations through crimes against humanity. So from, a, from the perspective as an international lawyer and an international human rights law, lawyer, I'm very encouraged by what I see as the, the groundswell of support for an international crime of ecocide. I mean, I think it would be wonderful if we bring that into force, but I also love what it says about people's awareness and where they're placing value. Well, obviously, the election of Lula in Brazil is a positive move, something to be hopeful about, since his predecessor, Bolsonaro, was guilty of ecocide in the most reckless and cynical way. So when you talk about ecocide, particularly in the context of global warming and the fact that the idea is catching on in terms of starting with Belgium but other countries might pick it up, who would be the most likely target for suits in lawsuits in terms of ecocide? Who who are the bad guys? <laughs> who are the bad guys? Yeah, I mean, I tend to think of it, it's a good question, but I tend to prefer to think about ecocide as a deterrent rather than as a tool to throw a bunch of people in jail. I mean, the two things are obviously related, but the power of ecocide, I think, is really going to be in the corporate sphere, um, which doesn't mean I think there's a bunch of corporate CEOs who should be thrown in jail, although I don't think there aren't a bunch of corporate CEOs who should be thrown in jail. But more that I think if there's an international crime of ecocide, it's going to shift corporate decision making. And we know that big corporations in the fossil fuel industry are playing such a destructive role um, around our planet and climate change. So I see the real power of ecocide in that it will have an impact on boardroom decisions, on CEOs as they decide you know, how they're going to move forward. If there's a threat of actually being prosecuted for an international crime, sure, individually, but even of being indicted for an international crime, I mean, it's not going to look good for share price or reputation, is it, if the CEO is indicted at the International Criminal Court for Ecocide. So there's a lot of people who might be on that list, but 
I see the power of the crime really in the shift it's going to make in in decision-making. But do you see a point in the future, Kate McIntosh, where oil is on a category with heroin or other dangerous drugs? I mean, we all know we have to stop using fossil fuels. I imagine that there would there will be some limited fossil fuel use well into the future. I very much hope for all of us that that's going to be extremely limited and that there will be investment in alternative sustainable energy. I think we could see fossil fuels um, as some kind of pollutant at one point. So we have regulations that um, that guide how much of particular controlled substances can be released right into the sea or into the atmosphere or into the land. And it might be that we start to see carbon in the same way. Um, I mean, that obviously relates would relate to the framework that's been established under the Paris Agreement in terms of the amount of emissions per state. But that might be one way it goes, so that there's a controlled amount which is permitted for particular purposes. And above that, it's prohibited. And then acts which were way off the scale in terms of uh, carbon emissions or destruction of carbon sinks might then qualify as, you know, a full ecocidal act. So back to human rights, uh, Kate McIntosh, and we started out talking about the horrors that are happening in Ukraine, which can be largely blamed on Putin's because this is a one-man decision to go to war. He's a dictator, and this seems to be his own personal obsession Ukraine. He has all kinds of strange historical ideas about Ukraine. Clearly, it's not going well for himself, but he's being a dictator. He, there aren't any checks and balances on him, and he seems to be doubling down. So this agony could continue for a long time. Are there some remedies there in terms of, for example, all of the frozen money in uh, European and American banks? I know there's a lot of the Russian Federal Reserve has quite a lot of money in, in American banks. So is there a solution in, in terms of holding that particular man accountable for human rights abuses in the way that Milosevic and uh, Mladic were in Yugoslavia? I think that depends on how long Vladimir Putin stays in power. He's clearly uh, not in any danger while he's uh, head of state in, in Russia. Um, but that was also the case with Milosevic. I mean, Putin is more powerful than Milosevic. A huge effort underway to document the crimes that are underway. To These are already being prosecuted in Ukraine by the Ukrainian domestic authorities, but being supported massively by other states. Now, the United States is providing a lot of assistance in that regard, and the Netherlands and, and other countries as well. It seems to me that there will be indictments that are drawn up which can be activated against uh, against Vladimir Putin, that these will restrict his ability to travel abroad at a certain point because there will be indictments that might be executed by other states, but that really the risk for him will be when he's no longer in power. Um, I mean, this is what happened with Milosevic. You know, once he was out of power, uh, he was handed over, and I think that will be the moment of risk for Vladimir Putin. The problem with that, of course, is it gives him a huge incentive to hold on to power. But um, you know, power shifts. We talked at the beginning of our conversation about the way the changes that I've seen and the changes that we've seen 
in terms of institutions or situations which felt like they were going to go on forever. They don't. Power shifts, people lose power. And uh, I believe that there's a reasonable chance that Vladimir Putin will be held accountable for his acts in Ukraine. But we've had an example of what you were just discussing, Kate McIntosh, with Mohammed bin Salman, who's been held responsible for the murder and dismemberment of a Washington Post reporter, Jamal Khashoggi. Mm. He has not, of course, been brought to justice. And he now made himself prime minister. And the Biden administration dropped the prosecution against him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's... Yeah, those those are very disappointing developments, obviously. Um, I mean, we know that holding people accountable is subject to political forces. Uh, and there we're back a bit to the point that we were making at the beginning. I mean, human rights, human rights law, international criminal law, um, the prevention of mass atrocities, these are really important and they're strong norms, but they're never going to be perfectly applied. They're never going to be perfectly applied. There will always be political concerns. There will be more powerful nations and actors who manage to escape, at least for a period of time, some sort of accountability. But I think going back to your appeal to be somewhat optimistic, you have to be realistic. I mean, we know that that's the way the world is. That doesn't mean that these norms are not valuable. That doesn't mean that they're not protecting people. That doesn't mean that, that we should give up on them. Uh, and the kind of courageous people you were talking about, the women in Iran, but we can think about all the, the, the activists in Syria who've been undergoing you know, this terrible conflict for years and years and years now, and they're still investigating crimes, documenting crimes. You know, there are prosecutions that are underway in different countries when Syrians leave Syria. So we've seen universal jurisdiction cases in Germany, in Argentina. Um, you know, these things do carry on. And the fact that it's not perfect, that it's not universal and that powerful actors escape, isn't a reason to give up. Well, so just in closing then, in our domestic arena, of course, we've just recently experienced a horrible massacre at a gay and lesbian club in Colorado Springs and there was a great deal of heroism involved with some of the people in the club that saved a lot of lives and it, there seems to be a, something of a backlash happening now in terms of people waking up to the connection between hateful rhetoric and horrible crimes. Do you feel in any way hopeful that in this country the level of hatred and dogma and prejudice uh, that's being expressed in our politics and in our media can be dampened down with the realization that this kind of hate speech has hideous consequences. I mean, I certainly hope so. We've, we've certainly seen a few examples, right? I mean, the, the awful situation that you referred to, the attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband, I mean, the January the 6th events of last year are all about manifestations resulting from hate speech and, and misinformation. I mean, that is a really big challenge we're confronting, the spreading of misinformation and hate speech through social media and, and you know, communication platforms. I think that's something that we all really have to deal with. I mean, I started off our conversation by talking about the positive things that these communication platforms bring, but of course they're also bringing negative ones. They are a factor of how we live. Um, we do have to try to work with them and, and to understand how to communicate um, information and values and education of how, you know, how to understand misinformation and how to deal with it. But I think um, 
to go back to a more fundamental question about whether, you know, whether bad things in some way uh, provide the situation for things to improve. I think that that's true. I mean, that's a little bit what we're seeing with the ecocide situation. It's as the climate crisis is really biting, we're seeing an impetus you know, to do something about it. I mean, activism is increasing. People are interested in, in introducing that international crime. I mean, as we know, the whole of international human rights law and all of the international criminal law developments came about after World War II and the horrors of the Holocaust. So in a way, there's always something positive and perhaps it is that um that it that spirit of humanity you know that i that essential concern for for our other our fellow human beings and for the essential dignity of the person that is strengthened when we see a, a real travesty uh, in front of us well kate mcintosh i thank you so much for joining us on this thanksgiving you're welcome ian happy thanksgiving Happy Thanksgiving to you. And again, I've been speaking with Kate McIntosh, who's the Executive Director of the Promise Institute for Human Rights at UCLA School of Law. She was an administrator responsible as Deputy Registrar for the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. And previously, she was a legal advisor to Doctors Without Borders and was part of post-conflict human rights field operations in Bosnia as well as Rwanda. And she was also the Deputy Chair of the Independent Expert Panel for the legal definition of ecocide. We're going to take a brief station break, and we're back looking further into what we can be thankful for on this Thanksgiving, as well as what we have to face as challenges to our democratic future in this country and on our planet as we address or fail to address the daunting global threats ahead. I've got plenty to be thankful for I haven't got great big yacht to sail from shore to shore Still I've got plenty to be thankful for I've got plenty to be thankful for No private car, no caviar, no carpet on Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And on this Thanksgiving, we're joined by Stephen Schwartz, who's a senior fellow at the Bial Foundation and a distinguished scholar at the California Institute for Human Sciences, as well as the editor of the daily web publication SchwartzReport.net and a columnist for the journal Explore. His latest book is The Eight Laws of Change, and his latest articles at Explore are Driving Out the Carbon Age, Healthcare After Row, A Saga of Shortage, Misery and Death, and Science Slowly Accepts the Matrix of Consciousness. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Schwartz. How are you doing, Ian? I'm well, and uh, happy Thanksgiving to you and yours, and I hope you're having a wonderful day, and uh, I hope all our listeners are, and, you know, I find... I like to talk to you on Thanksgiving to see what we sh- can and should be thankful for. My daily job is a news analysis, and unfortunately for the longest time I've been having to deliver a, a daily dose of doom because of Donald Trump being president for the last four years, and I thought in 2020 that, my God, thank God, he's gone, going away, but he hasn't gone away. <laughs> so this force of unyielding malignancy is still with us, but I still think that uh, we have some reasons to be hopeful. The, the midterms, you know, stopped American fascism. At least it slowed it down. Uh, it's still out there. So give me your appraisal of the political moment we're in. 
Well, I think, like you, um, I have the same issue. I do Schwartz Report every day, and and some days I finish it and just think, you know, are we going to, what is going on? My take is that these elections showed us that what is happening in the United States is that a new emerging majority is occurring that is made up of women, young people, people of color, and non-Christians. And that that's going to constitute a new majority. And I can see why, I mean, what's going on in the maggot world is, of course, their fear of uh, of replacement. They don't even know what that is, but they that's what they're afraid of because we are becoming a majority minority uh, country where whites will no longer be the majority uh, race in the country. We will be a majority minority. And I think this by-election that just took place, the, the midterm election, demonstrated quite clearly, first of all, that women have really had it with being subjugated, uh, treated as second-class citizens, the post-Roe decision. In fact, I, it's one of the most extraordinary things that the Supreme Court, that the six uh, Christo-fascists on the Supreme Court would choose to make the Roe decision just before the election without recognizing or really understanding the effect that that was going to have on the election. But it was clear, as, as you could see what, what took place, that women, particularly young women, are just not going to put up with inequality, gender inequality. And I think that uh, black and brown and Asian peoples are also tired of being treated as second-class citizens. And I think also that, that the whole gender issue is undergoing a major change that... Um, on the one hand, you have the violence has just occurred with the LGBTQ uh, community, but also the fact that this is really coming together and taking a coherent position as a group. So I think the promising thing is that the Democrats, almost in spite of themselves, are developing a majority and the Republicans increasingly are not only a minority, but their failure to understand that Americans support and like democracy really was, I thought, quite surprising that, that so many Americans really feel so strongly about this. I think that's very good news, by the way. Well, of course, though, the Republicans are the beneficiaries of the counter-majoritarianism that's built in to the Constitution through the Electoral College. And the good news was that they they normally control the Senate because these small red states still have two senators. To that extent, the fact that the Democrats held the Senate, of course, in uh, 2024, I think there's 25 Democratic senators up for re-election and only 10 Republicans. So there's got to be a renewal in the Democratic Party, I think. Uh, and yes. Even Nancy Pelosi, in her resignation speech before the House a few days ago, she basically um, 
said that we need a younger generation. So do you feel hopeful about that? Yes. In fact, I thought the way Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer and the the way that they not elegantly, but very graciously recognized the point that you're making, which I think is true, and and stepped aside while not leaving the Congress, which I thought was quite interesting because if you if you look at the Republicans who've been forced out, for instance, they all leave the Congress. Um, so they're Cleburne and, and Steyer and, and uh, Pelosi are all going to stay in office. So they will be available to provide some sophisticated insight, but they recognize that they have to turn the party over to younger people. And that's, I think, both very positive and the points that you're making, I think within the next decade, we're going to see a major push to eliminate the Electoral College because of the, exactly the point that you made, and also uh, that the Senate's going to have to be reconstructed in some way because you've got states that have tens of millions of people who have the same representation in the Senate as states that have a few hundred thousand people. So I think that's going to change it. You know, I've been doing this project now looking at 2060, and I see major change coming. For instance, one of the major changes is the end of the internal combustion engine. I mean, you know, the commitment that by 2040, we will have most of the cars will be sold, will be electric. There's just this new project about electrifying the roads that uh, will allow the cars to charge as they drive on certain roads. So I think we're going to see major change. And of course, what climate change is going to do, and we can already see what that's doing. The, the Southwest drying up of water, increased temperature is going to lead to a, an internal migration away from the coasts because of sea rise, another migration internally and the out of the central states because of, because of catastrophic weather events like tornadoes. So we're going to see a, a lot of shift in population. And I also think the pandemic, the COVID pandemic, is beginning to convince people that uh, we need to have universal birthright uh, single-payer health care. Well, that's been a struggle for a long time, and you can see how the Republicans fought the Affordable Care Act. For the life of me, I don't even understand how you could have a party that could even get any votes if they're against taking care of American citizens, taking care of their health. And of course, the leader of the Senate Republican Campaign Committee, the senator from Florida, Rick Scott, he is the biggest felon in the history of Medicare fraud. They yes. had to pay $1.7 billion fine, yet yes. he gets voted in both as a governor of Florida and now as a senator. So what's going on in the country in terms of why do people like Donald Trump and Rick Scott, there's a whole bunch of horrors, you know, like Marjorie Taylor Greene and others. 
what's happening to our politics that these clearly criminals and frauds and really dangerous, they're essentially fascists, how do they get elected? Well, I think they get elected because they have, uh, for several reasons, one is the weaponization of lies, which is what social media has become. Um, the fact that it's very important to always remember that the average IQ in the United States is 98, and 34% are between 98 and 85, and 78 is considered retarded. So we have a lot of individuals who are also not well-educated. You will notice, for instance, that the Republican Party is trying to dismantle public education and to restrict what can be taught at colleges. And the reason is study after study shows that the more educated a person becomes, the more likely it is that they will vote Democratic. And so the people who are funding the Republican Party, the uber-rich and the corporations they control, they aren't stupid. They have paid scientists to do research. And what they have learned, as I said, is that uh, the more educated you are, the more likely you are to vote Democratic. And also they have learned that about 27% um, of the country have overactive right amygdalas. That's a little gland in the brain about the size of an almond that deals with fight or flight and that you can manipulate it by creating fear and fear causes people to vote more conservatively. There are even studies that show that where you put a polling booth will affect how people vote. For instance, if you put a polling booth in a church, more conservative. If you put it in a school library or a gym, they will vote more uh, democratic. And so I think that the wealthy people who are behind the Republican Party and who don't like democracy because it, democracy would result in their being receiving more regulation and higher taxes, that I, what I am hoping is that the Republicans have miscalculated and that their backers have miscalculated and that, in fact, to the surprise of many people, the red wave didn't occur in the by-election that just took place and that a remarkable number of people are actually quite dedicated to democracy. And so I think in the next two years, we're going to see if the Republicans, in my opinion, spend all of the next two years doing the kind of nonsense that people like Jim Jordan are talking about, you know, we're going to go after Hunter Biden. I mean, I don't think most Americans either A, know who Hunter Biden is, or B, care. I mean, whatever it was he did was done years ago. So if they spend their time or impeaching Biden, which is another one of their big calls, uh, that they are going to really damage themselves in a way that will result in the Republican Party coming apart. So my guess is the 2024 election is going to be the election where we see whether the two-party system, as it is currently structured, um, is going to continue, or whether the Republicans are going to commit a kind of public suicide collectively 
because they have focused on things which are not really of interest to the majority. They are passionately cared about by the minority who live in this the maggot unreality world of social media and the right-wing media. It's interesting to see how Fox, for instance, has dumped Trump because they have calculated that he's no longer a winner. But we're going to see, I think, in the next two years how the Republicans behave, and that is going to have an enormous effect on the outcome of the 24 election. And on the Thanksgiving, we are continuing the conversation here today with Stephen Schwartz, a senior fellow at the BL Foundation and a distinguished scholar at the California Institute of Human Sciences, as well as editor of the daily web publication, SchwartzReport.net, and a columnist for the journal Explore. His latest book is The Eight Laws of Change, and his latest articles at Explore are Driving Out the Carbon Age, Healthcare After Row, A Saga of Shortage, Misery and Death, and Science Slowly Accepts the Matrix of Consciousness. Well, the malignant, greedy oligarchs who fund the Republican Party, they have captured the Supreme Court, though. I mean, they found that that was a soft target because it's pretty hard to sell their obnoxious ideas about cutting their taxes and and letting them pollute and whatever. So that's a done deal, isn't it? How do you undo that? Well, I actually, I, I, I completely agree with you. The Federalist Society worked out, they calculated that if they could get hold of the judiciary, particularly the Supreme Court, which they have done. But I think, again, as the next two years go along, A, as climate change becomes a bigger and bigger feature with more and more really catastrophic events, um, I mean, even from the snow in Boston to Uh, the sea rise in the Outer Banks of North Carolina, for instance, that people are going to begin to wake up to this. I mean, for instance, if you look at the projections, Florida, which DeSantis has really gerrymandered into uh, a fiefdom, um, first of all, large parts of Florida are going to become uninhabitable. And so I think I'm actually more optimistic after this election that just happened that within the next two years, given what is going to happen with climate change, given what is going to happen, I mean, for instance, this horrible thing that happened in Colorado Springs at the LGBTQ bar or club, I think that that world is going to recognize they need to band together and they need to vote as a block, and they're going to vote Democratic. And I think the same thing is true of young women who are appalled by uh, what happened as a result of Roe. We're going to also see, as you look at the data, and you know, I'm a data person, so it's I, I don't really care about political partisanship except anthropologically. What I care about is objectively measurable data. And if you look at the data, for instance, in the red states, the quality of health care has declined so precipitously. I mean, where you, for instance, if you're in some of these rural red states and you're a pregnant woman, A, you, you you couldn't get an abortion even if something were wrong with the fetus, but even more even if everything is going well and you want to have the child, 
you may have to drive 100 miles to get to a medical center where you can deliver that child. And the cost for doing that is going up just astronomically compared to the rest of the developed world. And so I think uh, I, I am optimistic in the sense that I think that there are so many negative trends going on as a result of what happened during the Trump administration that people are going to wake up and that there is a majority of people in the United States who care about democracy, who care about fostering well-being, and that the Supreme Court is either going to be expanded. Um, it's, it's concerning that the respect that people hold for the Supreme Court now has dropped precipitously. <coughs> so I think it's going to become so difficult that the Democrats will understand that a majority of Americans want something done. And so in the next couple of years, we're going to see some significant changes. I personally don't think Biden is going to run in 24. Um, I could be wrong, but uh, an 82-year-old man, I just, my guess is that at the end of the day, that isn't going to happen. I think Trump is just increasingly a loser, although the percentage of people that are the maggots, uh, they don't, I mean, they, they, they don't care what he does or says, but they are also becoming increasingly a, a disrespected minority. And by 2024, if they continue as they're doing, um, I think they're going to excite blocks of people, blacks, browns, Asians, women, LGBTQ people, who are going to come together in a way that they have not in the past and move with a collective intention that's going to significantly change the country. So that no, that's good. I'm I'm looking for optimism, and you've delivered a little bit there, Stephen. But not to <laughs> depress us. But the uh, UN now is suggesting that we have a nine-year window to deal with uh, climate change and global warming before it's too late. Can we make it? No, I don't think we are going to make it. Well, that's not I good. I think climate change is going to radically alter human civilization in every country in the world. Uh, uh, for instance, if you, there are several things that you want to look at. Uh, first of all, male fertility is dropping significantly. Women, I mean, that men just aren't very fertile <laughs> compared to men in the past. That one trend. Another trend is women are having children later in life. Uh, in China, for instance, the one-child policy caused has, has resulted in, uh, because it was so clumsily done, and because in China, they, if a woman was pregnant and they found out it was a girl, they tended to abort. So what you've got is tens of millions of Chinese men who, who will never find a wife. 
And that's having a big, a significant effect. You can see it in the academic literature. That's having a significant effect in China. In the United States, we're seeing again this drop in male fertility and the fact that women are having children later. Uh, they are also a larger number of people are not marrying in according to the data. So uh, that's one trend. Again, by 2040, um, I, the end of the internal combustion engine. I mean, if you really think about what that would represent, that's a huge deal. Um, I think that uh, also the, this pandemic, and there are going to be other pandemics, because as climate change goes on, the viruses are mutating in order to accommodate their new circumstances. And so uh, we're going to have more pandemics and the ability to deal with pandemics. I mean, one of the things that comes out of the pandemic, the COVID pandemic, is the failure of the American illness profit system. I mean, we, we have a large percentages of nurses and doctors who are leaving the field because the workload, the disrespect, the people screaming and yelling at them, threatening them. So the, the whole nature of healthcare is going to change. Um, and I hope in a good way, I think in a good way, because it'll become obvious that universal birthright healthcare uh, I think also one of the things that came out, and you can see this in the real estate, office real estate in the cities of the United States, that remote working is going to become increasingly prevalent as it, people are used to doing it now. They're able to do it now because of the increase in the uh, strength of the Internet and, and the power of the computers. So we're going to see a, a shift. You can see it happening in um, cities where office buildings, they can't fill them up. They can't get enough people to rent them. There are going to be changes. Also, we're going to see an end. It's already happening in a chemical industrial monoculture agriculture because it's becoming clear that that agriculture is destroying, for instance, the bees. And uh, since most of the food we eat is dependent on the pollination uh, done by the bees and the bees, I just saw a study, bees are only living half as long as they did 20 years ago. So all of these things are going to create massive change so that we're, we're going to, the world that you and I grew up in is gonna disappear. And it's gonna be replaced I think, by a world in which um, democracy survives, where people have moved uh, have moved in, in into uh, other areas because of these internal migrations. I mean, if you look at what's happening to the Colorado River or Lake Mead or Lake Powell uh, drying up. Uh, so that the, I mean, I just saw a paper about how in parts of California where you are, people are now having to turn to bottled water because they can't get enough water. And it's also having a huge effect on agriculture. So the, the uh, farm basket of California architecture 
uh, agriculture, which uh, has fed Americans for decades, that's going to undergo a radical change. We're going to see more growing um, uh, in communities, uh, even in cities, in vertical agriculture, in buildings. We're going to see the end of the internal combustion engine. That's, I mean, both in Europe, in parts of Asia, and now in the United States, in California, where you are, for instance, they're, they're saying that they want to con completely convert over to EVs by 2040. So I think between 2040 and 2045, the whole structure of automobiles and trucks is going to change. I think we're going to see an increase in train travel. It's interesting that the train unions are threatening to strike. I think we're going to see much more of that. I think we're going to see less air travel. In Europe, for instance, they are increasing the investment in railroads and the speed of the railroads so that they encourage, they're encouraging people to travel internally in the country uh, by rail and not by plane. So I think we're going to see a big shift in that. Um, the United States is also, we are reaching a point, we've had 601 mass murders uh, since the 1st of January, and almost 40,000 people have been killed by guns in a year in the United States. And I think, uh, I think we're finally going to come to some consideration of the American obsessive gun psychosis uh, because it's just become so dangerous. I mean, you know, there are, if you are a non-white, if you are a non-Christian, if, um, uh, if you are an LGBTQ person and you go to some place that you like, a kind of community gathering like this Q club, uh, it becomes dangerous. And so I think that is going to cause people to change their minds about guns. Uh, and the minority that is obsessed with guns uh, is simply going to be outvoted. So I think we're going to see changes in all of these things, these very negative trends, because they are simply becoming unlivable. And so I, as we sit here on Thanksgiving, I think we can begin to see out of these negative trends a new positive world growing because it's become so difficult as a result of the negative trends. I mean, if I were, for instance, a, a young black uh, today, I would have a very strong attitude about that. If I were a young woman, I think you're seeing it. In fact, you're already seeing it. Uh, doctors leaving the red states that pass these anti-abortion state laws because they don't want to practice that kind of medicine. Same thing is going on with nurses. Um, students are choosing, I just saw a paper, students are choosing their colleges, particularly young women, but also young men are choosing their colleges so that they go to blue states where women have equal rights. So I've, I'm, I'm at this Thanksgiving, I am modestly optimistic. Well, just in the last couple of minutes, then, you talked about agriculture a lot. Recently, somebody on my program said that 
the agricultural topsoil in the United States is depleted and yeah. that they're going to move into Canada. I mean, global warming, of course, will open up Canada more. Are the United States going to invade Canada? No, I don't think the United States is going to invade Canada. But the point that you're making, which is the soil has become incredibly depleted as a result of industrial chemical agriculture, monoculture, is, is going to force a reconsideration of how food is grown. And I think we're going to see more community growing. We're going to see more growing even in cities, as I say, a vertical agriculture, they call it. Um, because the uh, lack of water, for instance, in California and the increased temperatures, you know, cities like Phoenix, Tucson, uh, Albuquerque, Las Vegas are essentially going to become uninhabitable because they will have temperatures, A, not enough water, but also just the fact that they'll have, I, I, I've, I've looked at studies that show Phoenix could have as many as 100 days a year where the temperature was over 114 degrees. And I know from the expeditions that I did in Egypt that the Bedouins, when it gets to 114, will quit working. So I don't know how in a city where you are going to have 114 degrees for a third of the year that, that people are going to choose to do that. So I think we're going to see these big locations. I also believe we're going to see the collapse of real estate in the coastal areas and these multi-million dollar houses that are along the coasts are going to become essentially untenable, unlivable. And you're going to see it and you can look for it because the first thing that will occur, and it's happening in Florida, is that the insurance companies will stop insuring coastal properties so you're going to have a choice of either living in an uninsured house and taking your chances and having to pay whatever happens, or you're going to look for some other place to live. And so I think these, I think we're talking about, we're not talking about a few hundred thousand. We're talking about, I've seen studies that as many as 53 million people will relocate by the end of the century as a result of the climate change effects. So we're going to be looking at a, a country which makes very different decisions. And also the fact that, that our infrastructure, our bridges, our roads, our airports, you know, and you've traveled internationally widely, our, you know, our infrastructure is, much of it is third world. So sure. uh, it's em embarrassing, but uh, just... In the last minute here, we'll still be having turkey for Thanksgiving and uh, having our families around the table. Is that? I think so. A reasonable I bet. About, I don't know about the turkeys, but mm. I think well, turkey then. I guess is going to become more important, not less important. Well, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate uh, it, even though, as I say, it's a mixed blessing. I was hoping for a little more optimism, but reality trumps optimism. And uh, you've been delivering some of that. So uh, happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Stephen Schwartz, who's a senior fellow at the Bial Foundation and a distinguished scholar at the California Institute of Human Sciences. 
as well as the editor of the daily web publication SchwartzReport.net and a columnist for the journal Explore. His latest book is The Eight Laws of Change and his latest articles at Explore are Driving Out the Carbon Age, Healthcare After Row, A Saga of Shortage, Misery and Death and Science Slowly Accepts the Matrix of Consciousness. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. One more light goes on